I'd like to direct your attention this morning to uh, two passages of Scripture. One is found in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. The other is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. In Matthew, chapter 18, uh, the Scriptures tell us, in verse 21, that Peter came to our Lord and said to him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. In the Gospel of Luke, when this passage is addressed, it appears that the Lord himself is simply initiating uh, the conversation. But he says to them in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, Forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Now if you continue, if you continue reading in uh, Luke 17, uh, you will read a lesson about an unprofitable servant. If you continue reading in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, you will read about the unforgiving servant. Same text is used to teach two different lessons. The lesson of the unprofitable servant, uh, at least in my mind, is that the servant is being taught to do what needs to be done, not what he feels like doing. Because Jesus asked him, he says, which of you having a servant who works all day in the field, when he comes in in the afternoon, are you going to tell that servant, you sit down and I'll take care of you? No, if you have a servant who's worked all day in the field, when he comes in, you will tell him, I'm hungry and ready to eat. Make me some food. And the lesson then that Jesus ends in Luke 17 is, when we've done all that that which has been required of us to do, we must say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to be done. Matthew 18, you have this servant who owed a king a great amount of money. And when he could not pay the king, the king ordered that he uh, be thrown into prison uh, with his wife and with his children, all his possessions to be sold to pay some portion of that debt. And the man fell down and begged forgiveness before the king, that I'll pay thee, just give me time. And the king didn't just give him time. The king just canceled his entire debt. 
The man then left the presence of the king and went out and found a servant who owed him a very little bit. The Bible tells us that he mistreated the servant, had him arrested and thrown in jail. And when the other disciples or the other people around heard about it, they ran and told the king, you won't believe what's happened. The king arrested the man, had him thrown in jail. Because the unforgiving servant was more angry with the man that owed him very little than he was grateful to God who had forgiven him so much. These are two separate lessons taught from the same basic premise. subject this morning or the title of the message this morning is why bother why bother see I'd like to look at this from the aspect of Peter's question Peter says if a man sin against me how often how many times should I forgive him until I'm done with him Well, I think, first of all, Peter's question is a reasonable question. I think, second of all, Peter's question is an unreasonable question. And I'll try and explain that as we go on this morning. But first, let's look at this. Peter's question, I think, is very reasonable. How long should I have to tolerate the inadequacies of of other people? You ever had that question yourself? How long do I have to deal with the unreasonableness of other people? I realize that there is a there is a time in life where we have to be patient, and there is a time where uh, our patience, from as a human standpoint, sort of comes to an end. I, I realize that. Well, let's let's look at this example. In the Old Testament, Israel did hard work for the Egyptians. Right? You remember that? When the Egyptians were slaves, uh, uh, when the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, they did hard work for the Egyptians. But there came a point when Moses came down and said, let my people go, that the Egyptians made work hard For Israel. There's a difference between doing hard work and making your work hard. We see that all the time in corporate America today. It seems like those high up the ladder don't understand the difference between working hard and making work hard. So you look at people around you. How long should I have to tolerate other folks? You you may ask yourself, you know, why should I care about other people? Nobody cares about me. And really, when you look at the whole lot of human beings around us, people will lie to you. People will steal from you. People will run over you. 
And when you call them on it and make them uh, accountable for who and what they are, all of a sudden you're the bad person. And the reality is, is when you look at human beings around us, there's not a one person around us that deserves to be forgiven. I mean, if it was up to me, I'd wipe the whole planet clean. How about you? There's not a person around that deserves to be forgiven. Well, we're about to hang ourselves on this, aren't we? Um, let's be reasonable, though. Let's, P- Peter's question is reasonable. Let's go to, to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 102. Psalm 102, verse 6 and 7. Psalm 102 says, beginning with verse 6, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. What kind of situation is uh, the psalmist describing here? Pelican of the wilderness? An owl in the desert? Those, those don't belong, do they? Pelicans don't belong in the wilderness. Owls don't belong in the desert. They are things out of place. And then he says, I'm a sparrow alone. Well, the sparrow's alone. On the housetop. Subject to the force of the wind. Subject to the rain. I'm out of place and I'm all alone. You ever... You ever feel like that in life? You ever feel out of place? You ever feel all alone? You ever feel like there's just nobody that cares? Psalm 142. Psalm 142 verse 4 says, I looked on my right hand and beheld. Psalm 142 verse 4 says, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. So who cares? No man. Everywhere the psalmist looked, everywhere that David looked, he says, no man cared for my soul. No man would know me. Refuge failed me. No Body cared. That's just everybody in general. David gets a little more personal with that too. In Psalm 36. Psalm, Psalm 38, excuse me. You see, we're described, we said... No man, no man in general, no man everywhere, no man anywhere would care. So if no man anywhere cared, then notice this next step that David takes in Psalm 38 and verse 11. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore and my kinsmen. Stand afar off. The term aloof means to be far off and away. 
My lovers and my friends, those should be closest to me, stand away from me, stand afar from me. They stand aloof from my sore. They stand afar off. And then notice the very next verse, verse 12. They also that seek after my life. Now there are people that do care about Him. There are people who are around Him. There are people who do seek Him. But what does it say? They that seek after my life lay snares for me. And they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. So those that stand aloof and away and afar from him are his lovers, his friends, and notice it says his kinsmen. That's family. And those that do seek for him, lay snares for him, speak mischievous things, and imagine deceits about him. David said, my kinsmen stand afar off. So let's take, let's take another step. Psalm 27. In the 27th Psalm, David says in verse 10, When my father and my mother forsake me. What a thought. You, you would think that if, that if anybody cared about you, it would be at least your mother and father. But can we not see so many in the world around us coming from broken homes where it seems like nobody cares? I think it's interesting, um, in Isaiah 49, the words that are used, uh, I, I think are, are specific words concerning this same subject. Isaiah 49 and the 15th verse. Isaiah 49 verse 15 says, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes. But you notice, you notice it doesn't necessarily say, can a mother forget? But it does say, can a woman? You say, well, what's the difference? It's a big difference, right? Yeah. I mean, we make a big difference between a father and a dad, don't we? then we should make a big difference between a woman and a mother. Right? I mean, look at how backwards this world is. If, if, a man, if a man who fathers a child will not support that child, what's he called? Deadbeat dad. That's right. And if a man will not pay child support... What legally can happen to him? Anybody know? What? He can be arrested and taken to jail. You're exactly right. You don't pay your child support, you're arrested, thrown in jail. But if a woman 
will not support her child. What is she? Oh, it's terrible. Hard choice for her to make. She had no other choice but to abort it. Oh, poor thing. If a woman cannot support financially her own child, what happens? WIC, welfare. Section 8, housing. The taxpayer supports it. Not the same. You cry about equality all you want. That's not equal. You want equality? Make them both equal. Either they're both guilty or they both get support. So the Bible says, if a woman shall forsake her sucking child, has she done that? Can she do that? Yes, they have. There are just as many deadbeat mothers as there are deadbeat fathers. Peter says, you know, why should I have to put up with any of this? What does it matter? Psalm 69. Psalm 69 and um, verse 8. Psalm 69 and verse 8 says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. I'm the only one in the family nobody cares about. You ever been there? Maybe not. But you know people who've been there. And it is very reasonable for them to ask, why bother? I'm going to kind of jump ahead a whole bunch simply because we're standing here looking at this verse. But when you look at Psalm 69, Psalm 69 is bigger than David that wrote it. The Bible's bigger than those who wrote it, by the way. That's, you know, newsflash, understatement of the year. Psalm 69 is bigger than David that wrote it. Verse 4, They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Verse 9, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Are y'all listening to this? Verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Verse 26. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Y'all getting anything about this passage? This is a messianic psalm. I 
am a stranger unto my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. This is Jesus Christ. That's exactly who this is. Why bother? See, the reason that Peter's question then becomes unreasonable is that as you ask the question, why should I tolerate the inadequacies of other people, you got to remember that at some point, You're going to need, or you will have needed in the past, someone to tolerate you. Realities about Jesus' teaching is that Jesus cared about you when you were not worth caring about. And if there's nobody on this planet that you know of that is worthy of your forgiveness, you are not worthy. I am not worthy of forgiveness itself. See, I'm in that category. You're in that category. The unprofitable servants among us Or all of us. See, in Luke 17, when the Lord calls us an unprofitable servant, the reality is, is He's saying He has put more into us than He'll ever get out of us. If it was a house, it'd be called a money pit. If it was a car, it'd be called a lemon, a junker. If it was a human... He'd be called a sinner. Paul himself makes this statement in Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. Notice uh, verse. 16. He says that my first answer, no man stood with me. Now he makes allusion to this uh, back in the, in the first epistle of Timothy when he says that all those in Asia and all those that were with me have left me. Paul essentially went to Rome on his own. He had no character witnesses for him. He defended himself by himself. This is all men forsook me. I don't know that I have ever been in this position. And I really don't know that any of us have really been in this position. We have felt like we are alone. 
We have felt like what we are going through, nobody else has ever gone through. But it's probably more true that there have been people that God has put in our life to care for us and show us they care than what we're able to notice. Because notice the very, very next phrase. He says, he says, no man stood with me. At my first answer, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. What's the very next phrase he says? I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Ooh. Boy, isn't that something? That's a, that's a heavy mouthful, isn't it? That is a heavy mouthful. When it came time to pay the bill, everybody got up and left. You left standing holding the check by yourself. Where'd everybody go? It was fun time while we were tearing everything up, but when it comes time to pay the bill, you left by yourself. I wonder, I wonder where Paul got that attitude from. I wonder, I just wonder where Paul got the attitude that said, Lord, I pray that it not be laid to their charge. Well, there's no question as to where Paul got that attitude from. Acts chapter 7. Huh? Acts chapter 7. What happens in Acts chapter 7? There's a young man named Stephen. Who in Acts chapter 7 is stoned to death. Calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a bunch of hypocrites. A bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious hypocrites. And said that they cast him out of the city, verse 58, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Who later became the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God. And saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. They stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he would said this, he fell asleep. What where Stephen got that attitude from? There's no question. In Luke 23, as Christ our Savior hung upon the cross, He said in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why bother? See, the Bible tells us that no man cared. The Bible tells us that all men forsook him. Everything the disciples said, everything the prophets said, everything that those men of the Old Testament said, every single one of them can be applied to one person. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. No man cared. All men forsook Him. All men treated Him badly. All men turned away from Him. Smite the shepherd and the sheep were scattered. The sheep ran away. Even those who said we would defend thee to death. And when no man cared, and when all men forsook, Paul would write for us here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, he writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. When no man cares and all men forsook us, there was the man that cared about us. There was the man, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. If you want to look, if you want to look at Matthew, about the unforgiving servant who owed a great debt, you have to look at Christ who paid a debt he didn't know. It wasn't his responsibility to take care of that individual who was so in debt. He did it because it was the right thing to do. If you want to look at that unprofitable servant who his whole entire life costs God more than God will ever get back. You have to look at the man Christ Jesus who in six hours on a cross accomplished more in that time than I could in a thousand lifetimes. He is the man that cares about you. I think so often that the reason for I think the reason for the rejection of salvation by grace alone is that people cannot comprehend they cannot comprehend somebody that is as completely forgiving as God. And they cannot comprehend somebody who really means forgiveness. See, we will forgive somebody <clears throat> until they mess us over again. Won't we? And maybe, that's, maybe that is a human thing. Maybe that's a necessity for human beings because I'm not God. I don't have the unlimited resources God has. And if I ever did run out of anything, if God ever did run out of anything, He can just create something out of nothing and start all over. Right? Not me. If I run dry, I'm dry. And there is nothing else. 
But I think so often people reject the idea of salvation by grace. They think, no, there's something we've got to do. There's some part of the thing that we've got to uphold. God can't be... Salvation by grace is just too easy. That's right. That's right. It is too easy. Because it can't be any other way. In Luke 15, you have the story of the two prodigal sons. You say, what do you mean the two prodigal sons? No, there's only one prodigal in in Luke 15. That one prodigal who took his father's inheritance and and ran off and left. See, what you don't understand about Luke 15 is when, when the son said to the father, I want that which falls to me. He's only going to get what's coming to him when the father dies. And he's trying to run ahead of that and saying, you know what? I'd rather, dad, I'd rather you just be dead. Just give me your money and you go and die in a hole. Boy, are human beings not just like that? You know, when, when the brother prayed about God giving us the living word, what, what he has reference to is the fact that the word, the word doesn't bring life. But what he has reference to is the fact that the Word is always relevant. God wrote a book that is always relevant at all times. And it shows us the absolute depraved nature of human beings, how they value things more than they do human beings. So, but now someone comes up and says, well, see... You shot somebody who came into your house because you valued your things more than you did their life. No. I shot somebody who came into my house because they valued my things more than they valued their life. Amen. That's so this prodigal son, though, gets what's coming to him. And the Bible says that he goes out and he wastes his substance on riotous living. Now, it's interesting that the, the first portion of that example just, just kind of gives you a broad spectrum of what the boy did. But when the boy comes back home, there's the older brother. And when he hears about the partying and the dancing, and partying and dancing? Did you say dancing? There's partying and dancing. At the house, when the prodigal came back, did you really say dancing? I just read it. It's it's in the book. He says, how is it that my brother, who wasted his substance on harlots, now, how did you know that? Were you one step behind him? And you just decided to go home every night? How'd you know what he did with his living? Unless you're out there looking at him. And watching him. And just making sure he's not seeing you do the same thing. So that, this, this, is, this is unfair. My younger brother doesn't deserve forgiveness. You've got to, you've just got it. Because the Father says, you've been with me the whole time. Everything I have is yours. 
The younger brother didn't deserve forgiveness, but he got it. Because Jesus will say in another passage, do I not have the right to do what I will with mine own? Not only his substance, but the people he gives it to. Does he not? Yes, he does. And I really, I really don't think people can comprehend this depth of mercy. See, there's another story that's told in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. And there, this story that's told in Ezekiel 16 uh, <clears throat> sort of puts the perspective between God and men in the, in the right place. So I think a lot of people think that when they deal with God, they are dealing with God uh, man to man. Adult to adult. Grown up to grown up. And I do realize that there are, there are places in the scripture where God says that he spoke to Abraham face to face, you know, friend to friend. There was a time when God said to Job, stand up and answer me like a man. Sure. But I think if you have the right perspective about yourself and you have the right perspective about God, you will realize that you are never grown in the sight of God. Ezekiel 16 shows this. Ezekiel 16, he says, Son of man, verse 2. Ezekiel 16, verse 2. Son of man calls Jerusalem to know her abominations. Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. Um, you know, I hear a lot of... <clears throat> We try and read a lot of things to help rear our children right. We, we try and do what we can. And we, we've heard the old adage that if you don't make church important, your children won't make church important. Uh, newsflash, I don't care how important you make something. If God does not reveal himself to them, they're not going to care. Yeah. I didn't make lying important to my children. Somehow they learned to do that all on their own. I didn't make cursing important to my children. Somehow they learned to do that on their own. I didn't make stealing important to my children. They learned to do that on their own. I didn't teach my children how to swat one another in the head with a toy. Somehow they learn to do that all on their own. Is it maybe because their mother and their father are heathens? Maybe, just maybe, the preacher's kids are probably just as bad as yours. Because they both have the same heritage. We're all heathens. Because if it requires you to make church the most important thing to your child, then pray tell me how any heathen in the world will be saved. That woman 
who terrorized America in the 70s and the 80s, Madeline Murray O'Hare, hated God, hated the church, hated everything about it. How in the world, since she did not make church important to her son, how in God's name did he grow up to be a preacher? Now, I don't agree with the theology, but how in the world did he get to be standing behind a pulpit? But that God made himself important to that person. See, it's as for thy nativity, verse 4, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all, none I pitied thee. What does he mean by none I pitied thee? I've, just, I've been talking to you for 40 minutes about it. No man cared. Yeah. All men forsook me. No man stood by me. All men ran away. What does he say here? None I pitied thee to do any of these under thee, to have compassion upon thee, that thou was but thou was cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou was born. Thrown out into the field and left as an infant to defend yourself. Oh, how long is that going to last? How long if you leave that newborn infant child lying in the field, are they going to be able to defend themselves? How long will it be before they starve to death? How long will it be before some ravenous prey, some wild animal comes up out of the woods and devours the child? How long will it be? Not very long. How long will it be before the vultures in the air start circling to come down and have their way with the dead? How long will it be? He said this is exactly human nature. That if we were left to our own without the grace of God, we'd be dead in the field. That not a single person have the good common sense that God gave a turkey buzzard to come to Him. And not be a single person have any ability to roll over, raise a hand, or walk out of that field to make a better life for themselves. No, the only answer is in verse 6. Is that when I pass by thee, and I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live! Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast polluted in thy blood, Live! And I caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field. And thou hast increased in waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, the time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Why bother? Why should I care about anybody else if they don't care about me? I don't know. 
Why should God have cared about this infant child when the infant child did not care about God? Other than it was the right thing for God to do. It was a good thing for God to do. It was a merciful thing for God to do. What if God had looked at each and every one of us and said, Why bother? Psalm 142 that we read from earlier. Let's turn back there. Psalm 142, what did he say in, in, uh, in verse 4? He said, I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge fell me. No man cared for my soul. Now, as an adult, yes, David would have the ability through the grace of God to see no man cares. He says, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. There is no one that cares about us more than God. There is no one who has done more for us than God has done for us. Why should you bother with other people who may not care about you? Why should you bother about other people who are not as grateful as they ought to be? Because God bothered with you. He paid the debt that you owed. God bothered with you. Because what you could not do in yourself, Christ Jesus did for you. If you're really, Peter, <clears throat> keeping score, how many times you have forgiven someone? Have you really forgiven them? I mean, are, if you're keeping score, are you more concerned or you more, do you have more care about how this person comes out of the situation or do you care more about how you look to other people as to how forgiving you are? I mean, if you're really keeping score about how many times you've forgiven and how many things that you've done, have you really forgiven them at all? Have I really forgiven them? Don't know. Only time will tell. Only the Lord knows that. But I do know this. I do know this that David tells us in Psalm 103. That as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he put our sins away from him. The east and west. You know these, these, two, these two points on the globe. Are points that will never meet. You can start out walking from here and walk north 
and there's only so far you can walk and, and you take another step once you pass the North Pole and then you're starting south. Then when you get south, there's only so much far you can walk south before you start walking north again. Those points meet. Those points have a limit. But you can start out walking west and you can walk west and you can walk west and you can walk west forever and never cross east. And you can start out walking east and you can walk east for the rest of your life and you'll never be going west. He says, as far as the east is from the west, to eternity both directions, so has he put our sins away from him. Now, I would say this as human beings, as human beings, because we're dealing with human beings. That when you're trying to forgive somebody and somebody's trying to ask for forgiveness, People say you forgive and forget. That puts everything on you. You forgive and forget. No, there's a better one. I'll forgive. And you act in such a manner that it encourages me to forget. How about that? I'll forgive. And you act in such a manner that I forget. That puts it on both of us. That's a shared responsibility. That is equal. Jesus says, this is not a yearly thing. It's not a weekly thing. It's a daily thing. And if we have the realities of who we are in the light of Jesus Christ, we will know that we don't need forgiveness once a year from an experimental standpoint. From a legal standpoint, sins are gone. But from an experimental standpoint that the fellowship between us and the Father is restored, that's not a yearly thing or a monthly thing or a weekly thing. It's a daily thing. That our fellowship with the Father has to be restored almost on a daily basis. But He's so good. And he's so kind and he's so gracious that we can very much say that thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. I'm glad somebody bothered to care. Amen.